we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Every so often we find a book we feel we need to do a special podcast about. That is certainly true today where we have an important book that is also exceptionally timely. The book is Martin Wolf's new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Martin Wolf is, as all of you must know, chief economics commentator at the Financial Times London, and he is certainly the voice that all of us look to in times of financial crisis and in all the other times as well. Welcome, Martin. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We are also joined, of course, by our friend Ed Luce, also of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? Splendidly. Thank you, David. Splendidly. That's excellent for this early in the morning here in Washington. This book is an important book which looks at the twin challenges facing both capitalism as we know it and democracies as we know it. And of course, We are discussing it in a week where there has been a banking crisis, which has led many to howl that the response to the crisis, which uh, is effectively a bailout of the bank involved, proves once again that there are two sets of rules in the U.S. economy, uh, one set for ordinary people who live and die by their wits, and another set for bankers who can't seem to make a mistake that the government won't correct. So. I think it's timely. It also is we're heading into the 2024 elections. Some of the themes of Martin's books reflect on some of the characters who are prominent in those elections. I'll turn to Ed for the first question. Thanks, David. And uh, congratulations, Martin, on, on a great, and as David says, time, timely book. I, I hope we will get into the Silicon Valley Bank a little bit later, but let's just start with the main thesis of your book and the title about democratic uh, crisis of democratic capitalism. Now, whilst giving a sort of thumbnail of, of, of what, you, what you argue, 
it would be great if you could also address a running controversy, really, that's been going for many years, but particularly since 2016, with sort of one side arguing that this populism has been caused by economic travails of the middle classes and, and stagnation, and another side arguing that this is really an outburst of prejudice and xenophobia and racism. And it seems they don't meet very often. Could, could you give your view on that whilst, whilst explaining the broader thesis of your book? I want to try, and I tried in the book, not to be too reductive and sort of saying in a sort of Marxist fashion that everything is economics. Though, of course, I'm an economist and I do tend to think economics is pretty important. And I definitely argue that this is the case. It's obviously very difficult to separate out cultural attitudes in the broadest sense from other things that are going on because human beings aren't simple. They're, everything links together. But I, I suppose I would make two comments about this. First, I think that many cultural phenomena which people are objecting to are themselves in very profound ways economic. So it seems to me just to take one pretty obvious cultural phenomenon, which I actually think is the biggest cultural phenomenon of my lifetime, but also social and economic one, which is the transformation in the position of women in our societies. It's really not terribly difficult to see that a large part of the resentment that is around there, which we are seeing on the right, is misogynistic, to put, a, to put it bluntly. I'm not saying it's only that, but it's clearly important. But one of the main reasons for this transformation in the social position of women is, of course, economic. Our current economy, compared to the one of 100 years ago, is extremely welcoming not perfectly by any means, but extremely welcoming of what women do and can do, including relatively less skilled women, less not university-educated women, but in case of universities, women do spectacularly well there now too, and they have displaced men in significant ways, and men don't like it. That's an economic phenomenon, just as much as a social phenomenon that's driving it. The second argument I would make, and I could give many more examples of this, the second one is you don't just have to explain why there's resentment over economic and social change. That's sort of a given. The question I think you have to answer is why now? And the best why now example of such a catastrophe, and I'm not comparing it in other ways, is what happened to the support for the Nazis between 1930 and 1933. Basically, it's a share of the vote, it increased tenfold. Now, there were lots of anti Germans in 1930, but they didn't think they needed to vote for a Hitler because basically things were okay. But by 1933, unemployment was 25% and the economy was in a total meltdown. And that meant that they were desperate. And I would say that the move from George W. Bush and Mitt Romney to Donald Trump as the standard bearer for the right in the United States reflected the simple fact that the financial crisis ultimately demolished the legitimacy of traditional Republican economics. And that's gone on because no one believes in it anymore. And I think exactly the same happened to our conservatives in Britain. George Osborne, David Cameron, style economics, orthodox, austere fiscal policy in response to a crisis was just completely discredited. So Boris Johnson 
mounted a, um, a hostile takeover of the Conservative Party, just as Donald Trump did of the Republicans. And it was the economic circumstances that changed and which can explain that the social and cultural background was remained essentially the same. Thank you. And I strongly agree with that. Just a sort of very, very quick follow up. I mean, and you deal with this in your book, Martin, but the period between 2010 and 2016, there is a sort of pretty close analogy between the British and the American story there, the Tea Party you know, stopping fiscal, counter-cyclical fiscal policy in the United States after the 08 financial crash and the Conservative government elected in 2010, introducing six years of austerity, the end of which both countries in the same year happened to ask people, do you want to continue as normal? And the answer is a resounding middle finger. Is that is that sort of too crude a summary? No, I think that that is roughly right. And Similar processes have occurred in other countries. I mean, France also hit, of course, has basically demolished its traditional political parties on both the left and right. Well, actually, right, left, right, and center, they're all replaced by different styles of populist. And populism is style. It's not a doctrine. You can be right-wing populist, left-wing populist, or even, as Macron has shown, a pretty centrist populist. But what you have to be is against the established institutions. And I think the thing that we are seeing in many countries, not in Germany, interestingly, nor in Japan, interestingly, but in many Western countries, is that the politicians who are getting traction are people who can say, we despise the establishment. And uh, that's what's telling, I think, about our moment. Well, it seems to me that the uh, politicians look at the United States and, and the UK as examples that say we despise the establishment, say that, they get elected because of that, but they then defend the establishment and they strengthen aspects of the establishment that contribute to inequality and so forth. I mean, the Republican Party, regardless of its populist message, has had a, had the same objective for 40 years, which is let's uh, shrink the government, let's shrink taxes, let's shrink regulation, let's leave it to the markets, and let's serve the 1%, not the 99%. How do you I reconcile agree. that with your thesis? I agree completely. So as I say, populism is a style. It's not a content. And so there are different contents that depend on the particular political interest groups you're trying to put together. So let's assume that the permanent interest of the Republican Party is indeed to create an economy which is very good for the 1%. I think that is correct. In its various incarnations for a long period, I think that's a common strand of the Republican Party. I'm not going to go back to Abe Lincoln, but it's certainly true in the 20th century, they were the opponents of FDR, they were the opponents of, uh, of Johnson's civil rights and so forth. But they created a new coalition already with the Southern strategy and shifting the, the Southern states from Democrat to Republican. That already shifted them quite significantly in a more populist direction. But in, uh, in the, after the failure of the Bush administration economically, the financial crisis's response, they needed a new way of putting together their coalition, which shifted the balance of power internally in the more populist 
cultural direction while retaining its overall thrust. So in my sense is that the plutocratic element, if you like, were no longer able to be the head of the party. They couldn't be the flag bearers of the party. They had to follow behind. They needed someone who would who would capture the interests of of the majority of Republican voters and supporters. They didn't intend that. It wasn't a design, but it turned out that Trump was just that person. And it gave them what they wanted, which was a president, a competitive party, and the low taxes and low regulation wanted. Of course, it also gave them something they liked rather less, which is a president they couldn't fully control. But that was the new marriage. And I call that Actually, I called this back in 2006, uh, Pluto populism, plutocratic populism. And it's just an inversion of the people at the head of a party which continues, basically, to be trying to do the same thing. I know you've been paying attention to Fox News and the Dominion, disclosures to Dominion in that case against Fox News. So this is just sort of one manifestation of the pathologies that we associate with with extreme populism, extreme right-wing populism in this case. We see Tucker Carlson, it's arguably its main tribune, speaking with complete contempt about his audience, also complete contempt about Trump, but nevertheless deciding that that lie and that narrative is good for business. Could you slot that sort of particular pathology? Because it seems to be a very, very dominant one, a very influential pathology into what we're discussing? Well, it fits fairly well in the sense that I'm assuming that the dominant interests and influences within the the Republican Party or dominant interests remain determined above all to have a, a policy, a policy and a polity that is favorable to great wealth in various forms. So plutocratic. But pretty basic. In a democracy, it's not necessarily going to be easy to get half the voters or at least a very significant element in them to vote for you. How do you do that? Just saying your only interest is that is not going to win you a majority. So there's always been a, a need to create a coalition. Now, I think what's happened is it's always had, of course, conservatism has always had, perfectly understandably and reasonably, a culturally conservative element. But as the economic case has got weaker, more obviously weaker, for all the reasons I outline in my book, you have to start strengthening that wing of the appeal. You have to make the right wing, as it were, more authoritarian, more culturally conservative, angrier, to keep your coalition together. And I, I argue in my book that the most extreme example of that in Western history was the politics of the antebellum South, which uh, I discussed it a bit late because it's so shocking to me as a Brit, which is that they got so many poor whites who had no slaves or ve- basically no interest in this economy in any normal sense to fight and die in enor- for this cause. And I think they've managed to replicate this very, very successfully. And it clearly works very successfully. Now, if you think Fox, seems to me correct, is the most important propaganda arm of this form of politics, it's doing exactly what you would expect it to do if you assume that it has absolutely no principles, which is what I would always assume. 
I wrote about Mr. Murdoch in our paper a couple of times in the past. And what it would do is to produce the lies that will keep this coalition together. And reality has absolutely nothing to do with it. So they are providing the propaganda base. I've got quite familiar with the work of Joseph Goebbels. And I actually think he was, because he's a very interesting and important figure in all this. But I think the difference is, as far as I can see, but we don't, of course, have an equivalent uh, lawsuit in that case. He actually believed it. And uh, uh, obviously, these people don't in the same degree, but it's clear they believe in the cause in some way. One of the heartening aspects of your book is that you feel that these problems are correctable. You talk about the role that elites have and the responsibility that they have to correct some of the wrongs that are associated with globalization or runaway markets, etc. And yet the trends do not necessarily suggest they are stepping up. And in fact, the, the trends are, are quite worrisome. Yesterday, in the United States, we had Ron DeSantis, who's running as the alternative to Trump in the Republican Party. One of those two guys is likely to be the Republican candidate, state that he essentially embraced the Trump position on Ukraine, which is a pro-Russia position, which is we shouldn't be involved. There are close ties between the Republican Party as it stands and the global authoritarian movement that Putin has quarterbacked for some time. And strangely, despite the crimes and abuses and follies of Trump, Every time there's a new revelation, they they actually grow closer to these people. And they have Viktor Orban come over and speak at conservative, allegedly conservative party events in the United States. And you see this pro-authoritarian impulse, not just gaining ground politically, but embedding itself institutionally in places like the United States Supreme Court, which undermines voting rights and so forth. So when I look at all of that, I say that's a worrisome trend and I don't see the alternative on the horizon. Can you make me feel better? Well, I have to say with difficulty, uh, because I agree with all your description, I, I think there are two ways of being optimistic, but I'm not saying that they're necessarily credible. The first, obviously, is that the electorate as a whole, let's assume for the moment this is an enormous element in the Republican Party, but it's still a minority of the country that thinks this way. I think Trump and DeSantis together, well, you will correct me with the figure, but they can't have more than 50 or 60% of Republicans behind them in the primaries. You will tell me whether that's wrong. They could still have a plurality over anybody else, but that's still only about a quarter of the voters, presumably. I mean, I'm, you will give me the more correct figure. So most Americans aren't in this camp as far as I can see. And the optimistic view would be, and I argued this and have argued this, that um, the alternatives, the Democrats, obviously, do such a good job of governing and the Republicans are sufficiently discredited that they shift the balance of power decisively because it becomes obvious to Republicans that they can't succeed. Now, we're very far from that. 
Um, but the midterms were a little encouraging in this direction. But it's clearly nothing like the domination that FDR had when the Republicans have become completely discredited. So that's one point, a possible escape. Um, we are seeing that in Britain, I think. Not dramatically, but I think the crazies are revealing themselves to be probably 20% of the electorate at most, and that's, that's not going to be enough to shift it decisively, though it's done huge, huge uh, damage. The other thing that I hoped for with this book, but I, I'm not sure I will succeed and I'm very concerned, is I wanted to persuade the plutocrats, you know, the people who who've fund all this, who are at least very important funders of all this, that this is a ruinous marriage for them. The sort of society that will emerge if this sort of Republican Party becomes the government for a substantial period of time, particularly with a more competent or would-be autocrat like DeSantis, will be very, very uncomfortable for plutocrats too, because that's generally the rule. I Just to take a finalize with this, I mean, there is nothing less comfortable than being a plutocrat in Russia now. They are nobodies. And uh, so I think that sensible people who want to preserve their fortune, who believe in the market and so forth, should realize that the politics they have created is very bad ultimately for them, or at least for many of them. Now, of course, it's difficult to convince them completely of this. And as we all know, again, I'm not going to make the direct comparison. Lots of very rich people did very well under the Nazis. It still wasn't very much fun. But of, short of that, I'm afraid I'm not sure that I can be optimistic because what they are appealing to in this sort of politics is obviously very appealing to a large number of people. Yeah, it seems that... There are other concerning trends here, and I want to turn to Ed for what will probably be our last question, but I want to provide some guidelines here for Ed. You can ask anything you want so long as it involves Silicon Valley Bank, and you can ask anything you want about Silicon Valley Bank so long as you touch upon the fact that it was not just right-wing elites that stepped up and said, we have to bail them out again. But it was also Democratic Party elites. And it was also this third force, which is Silicon Valley libertarians, who we kind of thought would be an X factor and change things, all of whom have bought into the notion that capitalism allows everybody to rise and fall except bankers who are permanently protected. So I'd like Martin to comment on what you've just asked about Silicon Valley Bank. I just want to add one sort of uh, strand to your question, David. And that is that a lot of people have on, on the right been saying Silicon Valley Bank went under because it had really strict diversity requirements. And that essentially, this is a woke bank going under for woke reasons, brought down by its own wokeness. It's pretty extraordinary the degree to which woke can be brought into everything, but um, it's been brought into this and it's become mainstream overnight. So could you also address that? Well, I don't think I can comment at all on the last point. Uh, the that's the first time I've heard this. Uh, this argument has not appeared in the Financial Times or other papers that I have, at least not when I what the ones I read this morning. And it suggests I, you're not. It suggests you're not reading the Wall Street Journal, which uh, had an well, op-ed yesterday making this point. 
Okay, well, I I wasn't reading the Wall Street Journal as obviously as religiously as I should. I don't. But the point I would make is the mistake. I have just written a column on it, which will appear shortly. I think they made fairly standard uh, banking mistakes, which is what banks make. Banks are very fragile and they collapse. It wasn't even that the mistakes they made were so sensationally egregious. They're just normal sorts of mistakes that banks make in a time of very easy money, which is followed by a time of much tighter money. But this woke thing is, I can't handle this because it's just so stupid. Now, the broader question is, I actually do agree, disagree with you, David. It's worse than you think. It's more what Marx would have said you should expect. They haven't saved the bank, nor have they saved the bankers. I mean, the executives will go, their reputation will certainly be damaged. The ordinary staff won't be saved. The shareholders are going to be wiped out. That seemed pretty clear. And it looks as though the bondholders will be wiped out. At least nothing. What they've saved, this is really fascinating, are the uninsured depositors. The uninsured depositors aren't bankers. They're wealthy libertarians, as you put it very well. They are venture capital people and tech people who kept extraordinarily large amounts of money, at least by the standards of most normal people, in this bank and provided more than 90% of the funding, which is very unusual. And they're the ones who were saved. So it's what's been saved is the capitalists and the wealthy, not the bank as such. And this separation between the two is very interesting because they obviously decided this bank isn't important. We can do without it, which I think is a perfectly reasonable judgment. But the the people who provided with money are important. And the, the key point here, I think, is something I believe for a long time, which is that, and this was true in 2007 to 9, the people who are really being saved in these deals, the 279 bailouts went further, are the uninsured depositors. And the uninsured depositors are major corporations and wealthy individuals. And I take the view that implicitly what we are saying is we cannot wipe out uninsured depositors because they're such important people and they're such an important part of the financial structure of banks. I believe that's a permanent shift. I believe it worldwide. And that means that the idea that when banks go under, depositors will lose money has been extended from the insured depositors who are smaller to pretty well everybody. And that's a radical transformation in what how we should think about banks. And I'm going to write about that next week. But I think it's a key stage. And the fact that it's not really conservative, controversial among Democrats, either in the administration or as far as I can see in Congress, is just a fact about our life, like it or not. It does evoke the frequently quoted Martin Luther King line about our system providing socialism for the rich and demanding rugged individualistic capitalism for the poor. Um, I disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, your analysis and improvement on my analysis is acute and I think on the money, subtle in all the best ways for which you are known and direct in the best ways for which you are known. And that's why this book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, is not just timely. It's essential to read. There is a deep problem in our system, 
Nobody understands it or has written about it as well as Martin Wolf. And you have an opportunity now to go out and get the book and understand it that well yourselves, which I encourage you to do. For now, let me thank you, Ed, for joining us for this. Let me thank you, Martin, very much. Let me join Ed in congratulating you on the book. And perhaps as this story unfolds further in the months and years ahead, we'll have you back to continue the discussion. I would be delighted to do so. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And please join us again tomorrow with our next episode, which will be looking at some very strange and unexpected doings that are remaking the politics of the Middle East. Uh, Until then, bye-bye.